The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Good afternoon. This is Sheila Murthy. Thank you so much for joining us for today's teleconference to discuss the J-1 Exchange Visitor Program, uh, the conditions, the criteria, and whether you as an employer may be able to take advantage of some of these, and as employees to consider this as an option, especially when the H-1 quota has been used up and for other factors. Joining me in today's teleconference are two of my esteemed colleagues at the Muthi Law Firm, attorney Anna Stepanova, who's a member of the firm, and attorney Korzad Mehta, another brilliant lawyer who has joined the incredible team at the Muthi Law Firm uh, and who has a lot of experience with J-1 issues, medical doctors, green card issues, etc. So we, you have an interesting and varied panel of experts who can guide you on this topic, which I don't believe we have discussed previously um, on a regular basis in our Muthi Law Firm tele- teleconference series. So with that, um, I just want to briefly touch upon, as I said, um, you know, the issues with the J-1. So what is the J-1 classification? The J-1 classification is also referred to sometimes as the exchange visitor visa. The concept of really is about cultural exchange. It was created during the height of the Cold War in the late 1940s um, to really help for the education and cultural exchange and introduced in the 1960s. The purpose of this category is to further international relationship. They call it soft skills, you know, goodwill, all of that stuff, and diplomacy through education and cultural exchange. There are 15 separate categories of J1, which I'm not sure that we want to go over, but we will be discussing each of them, which is generally the common ones are like the au pair. Sometimes we talk about camp counselors college and university students, secondary school students, government visitors, international visitors, physicians, doctors, as I just told you about Korsad, doing a lot of that. And uh, Anna, by the way, does a lot of the F1 and the J1 issues pertaining to students because she was an international student advisor as well. We have J1 professors, research scholars, short-term scholars, specialists, summer work travel, teachers, trainees, and interns. And each of these categories has its own eligibility requirements and maximum duration. So I'm going to invite Korzab actually to jump into the next section to talk about what are the components of a J-1 program. Uh, Sure, Sheila. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me here today. Um, So each of these categories, um, the individuals who are coming in under those categories is going to be are, are going to be participants in a program. I'm going to spend some time now kind of talking about what are the what a program is from a thousand feet up Um, an exchange visitor program is um, a program of educational cultural exchange study that's ultimately overseen by the u.s department of state Um, u.s department of state considers and designates programs and gives them authority to interface with the u.s immigration customs enforcement agency's uh, siva system to issue forms um, DS-2019, which is the Certificate of Eligibility for Exchange Visitor Status. J-1 non-immigrants use the DS-2019 when it's issued to them 
to go to the consulate and apply for a J-1 visa. U.S. Department of State also provides an annual allotment of J-1 slots to each J-1 sponsor who's providing intern and trainee categories um, programs. A sponsor is the entity that is authorized with the power delegated by the U.S. Department of State to issue the DS-2019 forms. Generally, and our firm has assisted clients with this, private sector entities work with sponsors by submitting to them a DS Form 7002 to outline a particular program for intern and trade category placements, for example. Um, the sponsor reviews the program to ensure that it meets with the requirements of the regulations and then issues the DS-2019 that the Department of State has delegated authority for them to issue so that the foreign national can get a J-1 visa, visa, as I just mentioned. Regulations place particular requirements on sponsors to be accountable to the U.S. Department of State in order to ensure that the spirit of the exchange visitor program is upheld, namely educational and cultural exchange. Sponsor has to maintain good records of the program. They have to keep in touch with the host as well as the participant, provide annual reports to the Department of State about the program, and uh, are subject to audit by the United States Department of State and uh, of their activities as part of being sponsors of the programs. Sponsors who are not abiding by the terms and conditions of regulations may see their allotments reduced for future programs and may also see removal of their designation to issue DS-2019. So that's why sponsors are zealously protective of their status as sponsors. Um, anything that, uh, a, um, that an individual or a host goes to them with, which falls outside of the pale of what they consider they need to be upholding for, um, for the uh, program as far as cultural exchange, educational exchange, just program and policy considerations as it goes to the J-1 visa, um, they will be very, very resistant as a rule to doing anything that deviates from that. So they're very zealously protective of their status as sponsors. Um, a host is the place or entity providing the place where the exchange visitor program or activity will take place. And a sponsor can be a host, but generally um, we've seen that you know, hosts and sponsors are different entities. And of course, the participant is the, the J-1 exchange visitor. So just as a summary, um, a J-1 program is composed of the Department of State being the overseer, um, a sponsor being the entity that can issue the DS-2019, a host which can be a sponsor, but a host which approaches the sponsor to, uh, with, uh, with a, um, a program for a J-1 exchange visitor to participate in, and then the participant being the actual J-1 exchange visitor. Thank you, Korzad. Sounds like a lot of hoops to jump through, and no wonder it's not that simple or straightforward for some employers or individuals to go because they actually have to find all of this sponsorship and figure out how to, you know, do this or find an agency like the American Immigration Council, for example, that can act as a host or a sponsor, et cetera, right? There's a lot of juggling to be done. Okay, so let's jump to the next issue, which are how are some ways that sponsors are protective of their status. And maybe you briefly already touched upon it, Corzon, but maybe Anna can jump in. Um, yes, thank you, Sheila. I just, um, I would like to piggyback on what you and Corza just said. And it is, um, it does sound like it's a very complicated system. But um, for me, I like to think of sponsors as uh, a middleman uh, between the Department of State on the one hand and the host and the J-1 exchange visitor, on the other hand. As Corza just said, you, the host and the sponsor can be the same entity. For example, um, major universities uh, employ uh, responsible offices and ultimate responsible offices who administer the program 
on behalf of the Department of State on their campus. So they are playing a role of the sponsor, and the university is also the host. Uh, the the uh, sponsors are certified to manage the participant's CVIS record, student and exchange visit information system record that Corzad alluded to, and they issue, of course, DS 2019. They exist as long as the program meets the goals of the cultural exchange, and therefore their livelihood depends on how strictly they view their responsibilities, and they do it very seriously to keep their status with the Department of State. And that's why most commonly many sponsors traditionally take a very conservative view on um, the participants in the program, both J-1 exchange visitors and host uh, entities. And if the participant has already been in the U.S. or is currently in the U.S., the program may require that the participant apply for a visa um, as opposed to change of status in the U.S. And they may also um, be required to provide additional documentation of their present intent with respect to the U.S. immigration. Um, in some cases, um, which would probably be a very small portion of all cases, the sponsor may even refuse to issue a DS-2019 form to someone who um, requires a change of status or who uh, doesn't have a good immigration history in their view, meaning that they kind of jump from one status to, to another a lot, uh, and now they want to suddenly um, get into a J-1 exchange program. Sponsors take very restrictive positions, and they usually carry out stricter policy than what even the regulations and law may allow, so, they're, so that they're not running into any problems with respect to their adherence to the spirit of the exchange with the program in case the Department of State questions their activities or conducts an audit, which sometimes the Department of State does. The Department of State maintains a list of certified approved sponsors on their website so that um, anyone, a host or organization or a, a prospective visitor, for example, can look them up and uh, make sure that uh, what they see, the, their policy that's listed on their website, actually sounds like um, this is a serious organization, which in most cases it is. Thank you so much, Anna. Yeah, that Again, it's, as we said, you know, there's requirements, but if it's done right, there are people who do dozens and dozens, if not hundreds and hundreds of, case, you know, interns and um, uh, trainees and other kinds of programs. Uh, and again, as we said, we do a lot of these with certain entities, and Corsat's our sort of point of person at the multi-law firm. So let's touch briefly upon, I'll discuss briefly, the basic requirements for a J-1 program sponsor. So if you want as an employer or a business or an entity or you want to go through and become the sponsor. So generally the sponsor needs to ensure that participants particip are able to participate in a variety of appropriate cross-cultural activities. Additionally, sponsors are required to encourage their exchange visitors to participate voluntarily in activities that are for the purpose of sharing uh, things like the language, the culture, the history of their home country with the local population here in America, with Americans. Sponsors must designate personnel as responsible and alternative responsible officers 
RO or AROs to administer the program and keep the U.S. Department of State and CVIS, the Student and Exchange Visitor Information System, apprised of the program start date, the end dates, participant participation, and other details. Sponsors must ensure that the participants have insurance in effect, which is sometimes a big deal because that's an additional cost for the sponsoring entity that covers the J-1 uh, person and their dependents in case of any medical emergencies, illness, accidents, etc., during the time that they are participating in the sponsors exchange visit the program. Uh, there are certain minimal, minimum coverages that are required, for example, for medical benefits, minimum $100,000 per accident or per illness, which as we know is not a lot in America, a couple days in the hospital and that could pretty much get wiped out. Repatriation of remains in the amount of $25,000. Expenses associated with the medical evac evacuation of exchange visitors to the home country in the amount of $50,000 and deductibles which cannot exceed 500 per accident or illness um, so you can see there's very specific requirements for the sponsoring entity to do that. What about, is there any way to automatically change? Because that's a question we often get asked. So Korzad, I'm going to ask you, is there a way that a, a person can switch, for example, from a J1 to become a lawful permanent resident? Did they meet a person, fall in love, get married, or employers willing to sponsor them, etc.? No, nothing automatic. You know, there's nothing in the law that would that that gives a J1 non-immigrant a more immediate or um uh, or clear pathway to permanent residence than any other non-immigrant in the United States uh, or or non-immigrant seeking adjustment status or lawful permanent residence in the United States. Uh, they'd most likely a J1 non-immigrant would most likely follow the same employment or family-based options as other non-immigrants seeking permanent residence in the United States, keeping in mind their individual eligibility. So, for example, you know, like you said, if a J1 non-citizen is in love with a U.S. citizen and uh, it wants to get married to them and um, you know and and then make their life here in the United States, they'd go through the the same family-based option as someone in H-1B who wanted to do that. Or if a J-1 non-immigrant is an individual of extraordinary ability, they would go through the same petitioning process as any other uh, non-immigrant in the United States um, who's looking at that as an option. But for J-1s, there are two features and, and one specific unique feature that you have to keep in mind as, an, as, a, as a lawyer advocate when evaluating immigration options for J-1 non-immigrants, and that is non-immigrant intent and the uh, home residency requirement under INA 212E. Perfect. So let me have then um, Anna jump in to explain what many of you may be familiar with, the non-immigrant intent and what that exactly means. Um, so most um, J-1 participants apply for a visa before they come to the U.S. Uh, in J-1 status as opposed to changing status within the U.S. And when they apply for a J-1 visa at the U.S. Embassy or Consulate abroad, they must demonstrate the present intent to return to their home country um, upon the completion of their exchange with the program. The uh, J-1 visa applicant is not required to guarantee their return to their home country, which sometimes people uh, confuse the non-immigrant intent with kind of a guarantee that they will absolutely uh, come back to the uh, to their home country, um, because all that is required is a temporary present intent at the time of the visa application. 
consular officers are reminded by the Foreign Affairs Manual, which governs their decision-making on visa applications, that the visa applicant subject to the non-immigrant intent requirement, such as in addition to J1, F1, student or B1, B2 categories, only needs to establish their present intent to depart the U.S. upon the completion of the program, but they're not precluded necessarily from changing their intent in the future. So that's kind of foreseen, and um, this is, if it happens, then it doesn't kind of cancel out or made, um, makes um, their visa application subject to a finding of fraud or misrepresentation, because that may be based on a change in their circumstances after they already enter the U.S. Therefore, the requisite intent is to be considered in the context of immediate intent at the time of applying for the visa and later at the time of the exchange visitor's admission to the U.S. by Customs and Border Protection. Yeah, so the, like we said there too, the non-immigrant intent is one aspect. And the second issue that Korzad and Anna just referred to, Korzad mentioned 212E, so 212E of the Immigration Nationality Act. So besides showing the two unique factors are the non-immigrant intent that Anna just mentioned, and what we just said about Korzad, which is the home residency requirement under Section 212E of the Immigration and Nationality Act, which imposes the requirement under certain circumstances for the individual to return back for a minimum of two years to the home country or the country from which they generally previously obtained the J-1 non-immigrant visa. And so it mandates that unless there is either a waiver or it's been completed, that the J-1 is required to depart the United States after the completion of the program and le remain legally and physically resident in the country of last permanent resident at the time of receiving the J-1 visa for two years before applying for or becoming eligible for a change of status. There are some very limited exceptions. Uh, or file an adjustment of status for permanent residents switch to an H visa, L visa, K visa, which is a fiancé visa, V visa, or another non, or, or an immigrant visa. So J-1 exchange visitors are subject to the home residency requirement if they were admitted to or acquired J visa classification to participate in a graduate medical education, which is residency or fellowship. They participated in a program that is subject, whose subject is contained on the exchange visitor skills list of that person's home country, or the person was funded either by the home country government or the person received funding from the U.S. government for the exchange visitor program. For example, you have Fulbright Scholars. And so I know the next very natural question that everybody says is, yep, 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 I know I'm going to be subject to it, but now tell me, how can I get around it? Is there a waiver? How can I apply for it, seek it, obtain it? So, Korzad, if I can invite you to jump in and discuss and explain that issue. Sure, Sheila. So, the law provides for four ways that a J-1 non-immigrant can seek waiver of the home residency requirement. Um, they can receive a statement of no objection from their home country or country of last permanent residence. Um, they can be sponsored um, for a waiver of their home residency requirement by an interested government agency. Um, they can try to waive the home residency requirement by establishing that fulfillment of it would impose an extreme hardship on a U.S. citizen or lawful permanent resident, spouse, or child. Uh, or they can uh, apply and seek to establish that fulfillment of the home residency requirement would subject them, uh, the exchange visitor, to persecution 
uh, in their home country on, a, on account of race, religion, or their political opinion. Okay, and so then what is, so who's going to jump in and talk about the next topic? Who, what is a no-objection no waiver? Before we talk about the no-objection waiver, I just wanted to say that the choice of a particular type of a waiver depends in a lot of cases on how the J-1 participant became subject to the two-year home residency requirement in the first place. So where the basis of such requirement was the so-called skills list or the home country government's financial sponsorship, the most proper type of a waiver is through a no-objection statement from the home government. And it's also important to keep in mind that no objection waivers are unlikely to release the J-1 visitor from their obligation uh, to return for two years when there has been significant U.S. government funding of the exchange visitor program. And also, um, no objection waivers are not available by statute to physicians who came to the United States in order to participate in graduate medical education. But... Um, where the person, the J-1 visitor, became subject to the requirement of, by virtue of being on the skills list or uh, having been funded by their home government, a no-objection waiver is a good and it's most commonly used in those cases. So in a no-objection waiver, the J-1 non-immigrant will contact their home country or country of last permanent residence at the time um, when their J-1 visa was issued, and they solicit a statement of no objection from them so that they say, hey, you know, please issue a statement that you don't object uh, to me not returning to the country, to that country of um, residency um, or uh, nationality in order to fulfill the 24-month home residence requirement. And if and when the home government issues an objection statement, it's forwarded to the waiver review division of the United States Department of State, uh, where they will evaluate the statement, the objection statement, um, along with um, a review of the exchange with the program, finding and other program and policy considerations to make a determination if a favorable recommendation of the waiver can be made. If so, the recommendation is forwarded to USCIS, and then USCIS approves the waiver and issues the approval notice. Just as an example of where it would be a complete waste of time, money, and resources to seek an objection waiver, um, the, the Ministry of External Affairs of India, for example, will not issue a no, no objection waiver to any individual who has earned an uh, a Bachelor of Medicine or Bachelor of Surgery, the so-called MBBS degree, or Bachelor of Dental Surgery, uh, BDS degree uh, earned in India. This only affects a small subset of uh, people who come to the U.S. to engage in, in an academic research, for example, in J-1 classification as a professor or research scholar, but they do not participate in graduate medical education. Um, Thanks. Although you yes, permit this individual to pursue um, a no objection waiver, it it is um, because the Indian law and policy prohibits it. Yes, exactly, because there's a shortage of MBBS doctors and BBS doctors, and it's very frustrating for the Indian government to be able to, you know, send people and then feel like they come in here and the, con the country actually has got an extreme shortage 
of medical doctors, especially for rural and other areas, because in terms of percentage of population, there's clearly a shortage. So it makes perfect sense that each country has its own rules. And in India, the MBBS or BDS degree is such a you know, reason. The next, of course, is what we talked, what was touched upon by Korzad earlier, you know, is what is an interested government agency waiver. So interested government uh, agencies or IGAs, typically they're federal cabinet level agencies, but they can be the State Department of Health that we refer to as a Conrad 30, which, uh, which Korzad will speak about briefly, can sponsor the J1 non-immigrants for waiver of the home residency requirement. The most commonly common uh, type of IGA waiver uh, of the home residency requirement is the Conrad 30, which permits the State Departments of Health as well as the Delta Regional Authority, the Appalachian, uh, Appalachian Regional Commission, and the VA or the Veterans Administration to sponsor waivers for physicians to work in fed federally designated, designated MUAs, medically underserved areas, for three years in order to waive the home residency requirement. There are also, of course, several other IGAs, interested government agency programs that exist, which are administered, for example, by the U.S. Department of Defense, the U.S. Department of the Interior, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, and the NSF, the National Science Foundation. So procedurally, the agency will sponsor the waiver per the their, each of their individual policies and rules, regulations. So in the case of a Conrad waiver, the rules will roughly follow the federal requirements for these types of waivers in combination with the individual state or commission requirements per their health care provision priorities. The U.S. Department of State will then recommend the waiver of the home residency requirement to the USCIS, and then USCIS will exercise its authority to approve the waiver. So that's the procedural way. So now getting to what's very, very commonly used, especially for medical doctors, is, of course, the Conrad 30 waivers. And so I'm going to invite Korzad to discuss and talk about the Conrad 30 waiver program. Sure, Sheila. Thank you. And thank you for kind of, you know, starting us off with procedurally, you know, what a Conrad 30 looks like. But what I'm going to focus, you know, my, my portion right now on is just talking about things to keep in mind about Conrad 30 waivers. So one has to remember that over time, um, definitely over the last decade or so, there's been a concerted shift at um, residency uh, programs and at fellowship programs to move away from the H-1B for uh, training and uh, move towards, uh, kind of <laughs> lean into the J-1 more. And so what that means is that there are more people coming to the United States to participate in graduate medical education in J-1 classification than in H-1B classification. And if there are more people who are in J-1, there are more people who are seeking waivers. And if there are more people seeking waivers, bear in mind that the 30 part of the Conrad 30 is referring to the fact that there are 30 waivers per state. Um, they are a limited commodity. They're, they're not um, available uh, you know, plentifully, and there are certain places in the United States which are in higher demand than others. So that means that you're going to be in a competitive situation for these waiver slots. So, you know, the first thing that I would kind of say is, is that you want to try to nail down 
where you want to go and what job you want. So if you're going to be pursuing a Conrad 30 waiver as early in that fiscal year before you graduate from your, from your graduate medical education program as possible. Um, bear in mind also the earlier you start, the more time a, um, a, a, a entity would have if they're an employing entity to abide by the terms and conditions of the different Conrad 30 programs. Uh, there's a federal kind of basic uh, level of requirements that each program has to have. But on top of that, each program, based on their own individual um, state needs or uh, public policy, uh, health, public health policy needs, will, uh, will put on additional requirements such as recruitment before being able to sponsor a J-1 waiver. And, you know, sometimes employers have, have, need some time to document those efforts. So the earlier you start, the more chances there are that they'd be able to adhere to those um, requirements. Um, some programs are also first come, first served, uh, as opposed to uh, collecting all their applicants and then making a merit-based choice. So that's another uh, reason why the earlier you start, the better, because if you if if states start to run out of their slots and states are running out of slots earlier and earlier in their um, in, in their fiscal year cycle, uh, you you may may be in a position where you lose out on a chance to go through with the process. Timelines for waiver review are also different from state to state. That also has to be taken into account because if you uh, are targeting a state which takes a long time to make a decision, then they make a decision and that decision is adverse to you, you may not be in a position to seek out an alternative um, state or another program that you, can, uh, that you can participate in. So the earlier you start, the better. Sounds good. And what about, have there been any later sort of developments with respect to Conrad 30 waivers? Anything on not the horizon, really. uh, Corzad? Not, not really anything major developments in recent times. You know, the, the law has been pretty stable. Uh, the <laughs> last big change, aside from increasing the number of slots from 20 to 30, was the introduction of flex slots. Um, flex slots are limited to 10 per state that, they can use, that a state can use uh, to place physicians in non-designated areas, so in areas that are not health professional shortage areas or medically underserved areas, uh, but that service populations that reside in those types of areas. Uh, so, th th so that was the last kind of major expansion. Um, but on the horizon is a new J-1 waiver program, and we're all really kind of excited about that. There's a um, quasi-governmental commission called the Southeast Crescent Regional Commission, and their geographical area covers portions of Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and the entire state of Florida. Uh, and so that's going to be another program like the Appalachian Regional Commission and like the Delta Regional Authority, which can sponsor foreign physicians for waivers of their home residency requirement, um, and uh, they don't have that 30, uh, 30 um, uh, number cap, uh, and they're covering areas of the country which up to now have been limited to only their individual state Conrad programs. So that should do a lot to increase medical care and access to medical care in those areas, especially Florida, which has traditionally been a high demand state. So we're really excited about that. Yeah, certainly sounds very exciting and interesting because there's been so few developments and updates that have occurred 
with respect to the Javon Weber program. Thank you for sharing that update, Korzad. So let's jump to now a very important um, one, which is used from time to time, which I know, Anna, you and your team in the special projects department work on a lot of hardship waivers. What is a hardship waiver? How does that work? Because people interested would love to understand that. Absolutely. Um, so this is traditionally a very difficult waiver to obtain as it is subject to a very high legal eligibility standard. Basically, uh, a J-1 non-immigrant who doesn't want to fulfill or unable to fulfill the home residency requirements may seek a hardship waiver, so-called hardship waiver. So um, that is based on extreme hardship uh, to their U.S. citizen or lawful permanent resident spouse or child. So a spouse or child who is a U.S. citizen or permanent resident would um, experience extreme hardship if the uh, J-1 non-immigrant can demonstrate that um, they will either have to follow, in a case that they will follow the J-1 non-immigrant to their home country or stay in the U.S. without them. So simple financial hardships or hardships from separation are not generally well taken alone. Um, sometimes what we use is some medical conditions. They're very uh, common. So uh, if a spouse, for example, a child will not be able to follow uh, the J-1 non-immigrant to their home country because they're undergoing specific medical treatment or if they cannot be left behind if the J-1 non-immigrant departs the U.S. because they're uh, their primary caretaker. That um, would work well, but unfortunately that also requires a desperate situation in the family. Um, a well-developed and well-supported aggregation usually of all of the hardship is, is what we recommend to use in support of this type of a waiver. This type of a waiver is submitted directly to USCIS as opposed to the Department of State. And as part of the process, the uh, uh, USCIS will then uh, send potentially qualified cases to the uh, Department of State Waiver Review Division to evaluate the program and policy considerations and uh, whether to recommend the waiver. And if the Department of State does recommend the waiver, then USCIS will issue an approval notice and will send it to the J-1 <clears throat> non-immigrant. It's important to keep in mind that there is one exception as to what the uh, approval of the waiver will mean. In most cases, uh, the person uh, can use it for change uh, uh, in support uh, of a change of status application or current residency, but for um, physicians who were in J-1 graduate medical programs and who have been approved for hardship waiver, they, um, they're not able to uh, uh, use it uh, in support of their change of status application because the statute uh, basically requires that they depart and apply for another non-immigrant visa at the consulate. So. This is something that's unique to this group of uh, exchange visitors, but other J-1 non-immigrants do not have this limitation. Okay, thank you, Anna. And so the very last waiver that we're going to touch upon is, of course, the persecution waiver. Again, not used very commonly, but helpful to be aware of it. 
It's basically a waiver of the home residency requirement, which can be sought by the J-1 non-immigrant when fulfilling the home residency requirements. If they can demonstrate that they will be subjected to persecution if they return back to their home country, again, persecution legally under immigration law cannot be just for various factors, but it has to be based on race, religion, or political opinion. The standard for persecution waiver is actually higher than that of an asylum application because the applicant must demonstrate that they will be persecuted, that the, the applicants will be persecuted and not that they have suffered persecution in the past or have a well-founded fear of persecution in the future, but they must actually demonstrate that they have actually been subject to persecution. So a little bit of a higher standard. Procedurally similar to the hardship waiver in many cases, the J-1 will initially apply for the waiver with the USCIS, and then the USCIS will seek an advisory recommendation from the U.S. Department of State before making a decision on the waiver application. So you can see from this summary, that discussion that Korzad, Anna, and myself went over, um, it is something that you can consider as an employer, as an employee trying to find if you could be eligible under one, one of the many, many different options available for J-1, um, you know, exchange visitors. And we would advise you to consider all of your options uh, when figuring out, you know, what are my options? What can I do? What, how can I stay back? How, you know, are I willing to go back after a few years, et cetera? So, again, another very interesting and exciting topic, and for the right candidates would, and the right organizations make perfect sense. So please do consider it because we at the Muti Law Firm regularly utilize every option and avenue to help our clients achieve their immigration goals. So on behalf of Korzad Mehta, Anna Stepanova, and myself, Sheila Murthy, we want to, and the entire Muti Law Firm team, we want to thank you for joining us for today's teleconference, and we wish each of you a happy summer. Thank you and have a good afternoon. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.